Welcome to Looking In, Breathing Out. Uncommon reflections on common questions. Hi, I'm Jennifer Davis, yoga therapist, writer, and urban planner. I'm Mara Hesed, yoga teacher, artist, mom. I'm Jonathan Salisbury, actor, director, producer, and composer. Hey, Mara here. We wanted to say a warm word of thanks. We're heading into the close of season one, and we are so grateful to you for listening and engaging with us this past year. What you are about to hear is the 10th episode in a 12-episode season. 11 will air in mid-November, and for our final episode to be released in December, we want to give the mic to you. You may have noticed that all our guests in season one were friends and acquaintances, the fascinating people we've met along the way. We know that everyone has a story to tell, and we are hoping that you, thoughtful, intelligent friends, might also be willing to share your story by sending us an email, or better yet, a voice memo, at lookinginbreathingout at gmail.com. Perhaps you have a personal story that has relevance or a counter-argument you could contribute to the discourse. Let us know what's knocking around inside your brain. We can't wait to hear your voice. Meanwhile, you'll hear my voice in this next episode called Wrinkles in Time. It is about aging, and I wrote it on my birthday two years ago. So the fact is, I have become even wrinklier in the time that has passed since. That was actually the first piece I wrote for Looking In, Breathing Out. It was the prototype episode. We created it as an experiment to see if we could create a podcast episode, and it turns out we could. And even though we weren't sure we'd release this baby, listening back to it, we felt compelled to. We realized this mini-episode was a perfect addendum to the big fat piece we released two episodes ago called What's the Skinny about Body Image. Body image and aging are all tied up together for sure. But more to the point, the two episodes are philosophically aligned. They are both about crashing through superficiality to gain access to our deeper wisdom, and in doing so, being able to stay in tune with reality and what's really real. You got to meet my dad back in episode five. Perhaps his real heart and gentle wisdom came through. He and I collaborate well, so sometimes I'll pass him whatever I'm working on to get his take. And while the rant that tumbled out of me for What's the Skinny was in mid-avalanche, I did just that. I was on about how cloudy our perception tends to be, how susceptible we are to social programming, and how that limits us. And we end up languishing in cages of our own making. My dad listened. He contemplated. We are both tortoises, not in any way hares. So we sat there for a bit and sipped our coffee. Finally, he said, there was this thing that he heard a priest say ages ago, and who knows where the priest got it, but it's one of those sticky notions that stays with you. He said the priest applied it to the context of marriage, and he said if you are more in love with the idea you have of who your spouse is than you are with your spouse, as they are, then you are an enemy to your spouse. 
I love this language because it communicates the urgency of the misapprehension. It's like you're not just a little lost, you are a nemesis. If we are not standing on the side of reality, then we are actively standing against it. It basically took me several nearly hour-long episodes to say that same very pithy thing. Fortunately, the addendum you are about to hear is short. It affirms that if we are more in love with the way we wish we looked, or how we feel we should look, or the imaginary Sex in the City girl version of what we could look like if only, if only things were different, if I was different, if reality wasn't as it is. If we spend more energy on the delusion than the actuality, then yes, we are enemies to ourselves. In the short episode you are about to hear, our guest Lindsay Walker, LMFT, says, Wisdom is earned. Hopefully there is evidence in this episode of growth. I'm definitely two years older and maybe a little bit wiser. We are all evolving in our time. My hunch is that it's worth the sacrifice, and if we do it together, we can help bring each other up. Let us keep expanding and exploring without further ado. I just turned 45. If we can define suffering as wanting things to be other than as they are, I might be suffering a little bit about it. I mean, I had a really nice birthday, joyous even. I just can't help feeling slightly unsettled. Wherefore? As they say, it beats the alternative. Or as my wise teacher told me, 45 is young middle age. I thought it was middle middle age, but he said, no, you're middle age until you're 60. After that, you're old. And when you hit 70, you're just fucked. He's 73. I'm obviously not the only person feeling uncomfortable about this natural life process that every single body experiences eventually. Aging is probably second only to dying on the list of natural life processes that we're absolutely destined for, but would likely avoid if only we could. Actually, the universality of this feeling I've been having is kind of beautiful. If misery loves company, I'll have lots of friends. Somewhat unfortunately, the fact that every race, gender, and creed struggles with aging explains the quite extensive list of commodities on the consumer market that enable us to believe, however cockamamie, in the possibility of avoidance. Because we want to believe. Rationally, we know we're traversing a one-way street. Getting older is unavoidable. Yet, somehow I still find myself shocked by the mounting evidence that I am not the immortal one. How is it possible that I too shall pass? When I investigate my feelings, both rational and irrational, around this inevitability, I would say my perturbation begins with this truly unenlightened thought. What is happening to my neck? We all notice signs of aging in various areas of our lives and selves. Countless articles online address this. All such thinly veiled lies. They all have titles like, A Stop to Aging in Eight Simple Steps. They picture 25-year-olds applying moisturizer liberally to their collagen-abundant décolletages. And in the corners of my psyche, I'm making a million unconscious, split-second, fear-based choices to believe. They tell me the neck is often the first part of the body to show age, though my brother says he'd trade my neck for some more hair any day. Somehow I got all the turkey neck DNA, while his jawline remains taut and robust. 
The irrefutable, unchangeable, frustrating fact is some people get fat, some people get wrinkles, some people go gray, but everybody gets old. I saw an advertisement on a TV at the grocery store, Whole Foods, ironically, for Botox. I found it shocking. I sort of imagined that was something you did in remote alleys or in the backs of vacuum repair storefronts. But no, the FDA approved this injecting of small amounts of botulism into your face in 2002. The FDA approves a lot of things, many that are known or probable carcinogens. The list is staggering, and especially if you too are middle-aged, I recommend not looking it up. Suffice it to say, chemotherapy use is predicted to increase 50% by the year 2040. Of the nearly 16 million cosmetic, minimally invasive procedures performed last year, most were botulinum toxin type A, Botox. Many of these were performed on men and women who don't actually have wrinkles yet, as most people start Botox in their 30s. There is the risk of droopy eyelids, facial asymmetry, and possible drooling, but it's otherwise surprisingly easy to get Botox. You only have to be poked three to four times a year. Cost is about 500 per visit, which is pricey compared to, say, acupuncture, but cheap compared to a boob job. On the other hand, if you're averse to needles or botulism, there is facial yoga, that is, exercises for the face. People suffering from aging can learn this ancient technique in one 50-minute class that costs only $200. Apparently, it is even more effective than surgery, so I guess it's a bargain at that price. I've been trying to use the one where you point your chin up and make a duck face. I have about 10 seconds worth of patience for it. You have to do these exercises 30 minutes every single day for at least five months. Then they say, you could possibly look a couple years younger. Watch TV, kids. Mommy's got to do her face yoga. You can read all about these and other denial tactics at goodhousekeeping.com, the go-to magazine for American women since 1885. Please note, this magazine's inception predates our right to vote. While you're searching, you might also check out Vampire Facials, where they take out your blood and essentially put it back into your face, or look at the use of women's placentas in cosmetics, by the way, if your mind went where mine did, no, you can't sell your placenta to cosmetic manufacturers. It's illegal to buy and sell human organs, so they use animal ones. God willing, in our fervor, we won't revert back to antiquity and start bathing in crocodile dung. Honestly, you can find any quackery on the $200 billion anti-aging market that makes you believe. But it is exhausting. The gurus say searching is a dirty word. If so, the internet is positively unsanitary. It feeds that thing in us that thinks the more it hurts, the more effective it is, the more expensive, more invasive, more disgusting, more weird. Because it is hard work to keep suspending our disbelief. And maybe our fear would be abated if only our neck looked like the 25-year-old in the picture instead of the 45-year-old we see when we catch a glimpse of ourself in the car window. And then maybe we could imagine we had those 20 years, which passed in the blink of an eye, back. And if we imagine really hard, maybe we could believe that there is no end. Or there is acceptance of reality. I have a couple friends in my age range who have decided to let their hair go gray. These are women who've spent resources and years dyeing their hair to cover their gray, and now they're embracing it, accepting their reality. 
My friend Lindsay is a private practice marriage and family therapist in Seattle, Washington. She has a beautiful mop of fully gray hair. I've had like old person hair forever. I got my first gray hair when I was 14 and I plucked that right out. It started turning more in my 20s. I started to dye it because I was young and didn't really know myself that well. And hairdresser was like, oh, you need to cover that up, which is really what people have done for a long time. Long story short, I dyed my hair and through most of my 30s and wasn't until I started having my locks taken care of by my friend in LA. She saw that I was getting frustrated with having a diet every six weeks and she said, why don't you just throw it out and go gray and wear red lipstick? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's less of a bold beauty choice and more of a laziness, but it's been working out okay and I've had more people compliment my hair. Well, for for one thing, that's kind of, that's now only very recently become sort of trendy. You know, Kelly Alborn, who ushered that in, they went to their hairdressers and said, bleach my hair so I can dye it gray. And they they really created that trend, which I think garnered admiration for people with natural gray hair like me. Like, I'll go in to get my hair done, and a 20-year-old working at the salon will say, oh, my God, I love your hair. I feel like I found myself just on the other side of conversation. I guess I would say I slept more under the radar before, just being a person with either my normal dark hair or my dark dyed hair, and now I'm more of a focal point, which is a little strange for me, but I'll get the admiration or I'll get comments from some women saying, oh, I I really like your hair, but I'm just not ready for that. Or it looks good on you because you have a young face. It's really funny to me. I don't really know what to make of any of those comments. I feel like since I went gray earlier, maybe, that I've been able to live a little bit on both sides. Like, when people see me, I'm laughing because once this woman who was clearly, like, a senior citizen asked me if I was on Medicare. And so, <laughs> so um, but anyway, I feel like I've been able to be on both sides. Like, sometimes people really can't tell what age I am. I don't feel very old right now in this moment. There are times when I look in the mirror and I'll say, oh, (laughs) who's that? Or, okay, I guess that's me. Like, that's sort of my self-talk. Yeah, I mean, Um, I guess that's sort of an odd thing about aging that I'm coming up against. And I feel like even this happened throughout the aging process where you feel like you're young, but you look like you're old. (laughs) Right. I know. My internal image of myself is somewhere around 20. There's a yoga concept called santosha. It translates as contentment. It was first put to me as being able to watch your house burn down and see the beauty in the smoke as it curls up to heaven. And that's still how I understand it. It is such a fundamental survival skill, and it takes practice. It is hard to drown out the ubiquitous noise, the constant blitz of media and money manipulation telling you your aging face is no longer lovely. Fear is the natural response. But as one great yogi put it, whoever told you yoga is natural. The challenge is to conquer our nature. We can't control the fact of aging, but we can control our acceptance of truth. And the truth is that even the most neglected and abused human visage has grandeur in it. We're already whole. Our imperfection is perfect. We don't need the external fix. We do know this. We just tend to have these terribly stubborn blind spots. I see concern about age come up more in younger people. How young? Oh, early 30s. Mm. And and maybe because that's 
one of the first times when people are starting to become aware that their voices have had consequences. This would be the developmentally appropriate blind spot that Botox pushers are seeking to exploit. Oftentimes you've been out living in the world for your 20s, which I think is one of the hardest decades. And maybe you're coming out of the fog of that and sort of making choices in a less conscious way. And you're sitting with the result of all of that. And something about it isn't right. And, you know, people come into my office and they have to process through all that and maybe do some digging into what it was about the environment that they came from that led them to make those choices. And now they're 30. And, oh, my gosh, and here I am in my life, and it's going to be a lot harder for me to, to make changes. And people start to feel pressure about, you know, finding a good relationship, making the right career choice. And I think that since they haven't lived as much, they see 30 or 31 or 32 or 33, which I'm laughing now because you realize that that's like a real baby age when you're, you're 44. You know, they say that as like, I'm so old, and what am I going to do? Well, it's just interesting that at any age, like even when you are in a broader perspective, definitely on the younger side of things, even mm -hmm. still, you have this experience of aging, of growing older. Yeah. The other part that I wanted to say about that is that being older is not a guarantee of anything. If you're under any kind of illusion that once you hit 65, like I've hit my retirement age and so now life is figured out, like you can let that go. I think the oldest client I had was maybe 78. And the thing about working with people of any age and even older ages is that you can come in and be presenting an experience in the therapy room that feels as young as eight or nine or even younger than that. Or be 78 and struggle with the same thing the 23-year-old is struggling with. You know, wisdom, wisdom's earned and it takes a lot of grappling with your own internal world in order to get, you know, the wisdom that one might get at an older age. I realized in talking to Lindsay that I had been isolating my identity to being singularly 45. As we talked, my mind opened a crack, and I began thinking of time less linearly. I'm not just 45. I'm the sum of 45 years of experience, and all that experience is still there, living within me. I suddenly felt richer, less see-through. Getting old, getting sick, dying, it's hard, and it's not pretty for anyone, no matter how much Botox you do or even what age you actually are. But there is wisdom in those years. It's just a matter of accessing it. There's more chance for perspective when you're older because you have more experiences. But I think it's really the, the process of introspection and allowing what hasn't lived in you that you've actually been through to emerge and to, for you to live that, like that gives you a broader experience. You have more facets and more access to your own life. Like the work you do is to help people access the wisdom of those years instead of to shut out everything that came that led you to this point. Is that what you find right. that people sort of disconnect from their past? Right, because it's so, um, there was something like painful about it or shameful and so part of you gets lost and there's a lot of potential vitality in, in those experiences. I think, you know, uh, a lot of people are afraid of certain parts of life, which makes sense. Yeah, because life is terrifying, and at the core of it, anxiety about aging may not only reflect our unmanaged feelings about the past, it also echoes our fear of the future. The raw, difficult truth that we're all going to die 
passes through my mind, well, maybe more often than it needs to. I try to limit the number of times a day, I think. When my daughter is my age, I'll be 85 if I make it that far. It seems impossible, yet it is the most certain thing we know in life. It wrenches the gut. I won't know her when she's old. Like any self-respecting college art student, I had a copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra on my shelf that I was never able to get through. But recently, in my despair about my neck and possibly one or two other teensy unprocessed feelings, I turned to Nietzsche, as one does, specifically to Nietzsche's concept of eternal recurrence. Eternal recurrence is his notion that given infinite time and finite circumstance, everything would repeat itself endlessly. He describes it like this. What if, some day or night, a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, This life, as you now live it, and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god and never have I heard anything more divine. This is aliveness. This is the heart of it, to be present for the tremendous moments. And by tremendous, Nietzsche doesn't mean jolly or fun or even necessarily our happiest moments. If one looks broadly at one's days, don't we find that even the hard, the ugly, the unpleasant moments have bolstered our humanity? We move like tulips towards the sun. Yes, we may all be fellow passengers to the grave, but what is here and now is tremendous. We have to trust our growing. And the sagging skin and the graying hair must be accepted and embraced and worn proudly, almost as a badge in the struggle to earn wisdom. Eventually we'll believe our own story over the women's magazines and the implicit societal ageism. Eventually we will fall in love with this life exactly as it is. Amor Fati. Nietzsche describes this as the formula for human greatness. To fall in love with your fate. To trust it. As the Stoic Epictetus puts it, do not seek for things to happen the way you want them to. Rather, wish that what happens, happens the way it happens, then you will be happy. For me, now running on a treadmill can be a very emotional experience, connecting to some part of myself that I don't always have access to when I'm just going about busy in my day-to-day life. And I can do that because I've spent so much of my time now getting to know myself and doing inner reflection, reflective work. Some people exercise as a way to avoid what's happening inside. You have to know the difference. I think that there needs to be the full package. Maybe that's the, what's it called, the the secret of eternal youth. Exercise or internal work or both? Maybe both. Which would you rather be, 23 and miserable or 78 and happy? This episode of Looking In, Breathing Out was written and narrated by Mara Hesed. 
Music was by Jonathan Salisbury, who also produced the podcast. To find out more or to send us your comments and questions, please visit us at lookinginbreathingout.com. Thanks for listening.